This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. As strange as this story may seem, this is a work of nonfiction with no invented dialogue. Every reenactment you hear comes from government files, archives, diaries, letters, newspaper articles, books, or trial testimony. It's September 2nd, 1925, when George Remus walks out of the Atlanta Penitentiary. But he's heading straight back to jail, this time in Ohio to await another trial on charges of buying and hauling whiskey out of the Jack Daniels distillery in St. Louis. Two days later, Remus's man, George Connors, arrives at the Montgomery County Jail in Dayton. He finds Remus agitated and on edge. Remus's breath comes in long, deep rasps that alarm Connors. He tries to calm Remus, thinking he's worried about the upcoming trial. But no, Remus is despondent, obsessed with thoughts of Imogene in the arms of the disgraced federal agent, Franklin Dodge. Connors, were you surprised at Mrs. Remus suing me for a divorce? I was not. By God, Connors, I picked her up out of the gutter and tried to make a lady out of her, but it was not in her. Connors looks in Remus's eyes and suddenly doesn't see his old friend. He sees a wild-eyed stranger. Remus grabs Connors and shakes him around the room, leading him in an odd and violent dance. Connors tries to look at Remus straight on and bring him back to the moment, but he can't even see the pupils of his friend's eyes. Tormented by dark visions of Imogene, Remus remains in jail for a few more days while Connors raises the cash for his bail. Finally, he's able to pick Remus up and drive him back to his mansion in Cincinnati. Remus walks in and feels happy to be home until he discovers there is no sign of Imogene. He wanders in a daze throughout each room and calls for a servant. What has become of my wife? Uh, she's gone away with Franklin Dodge. With Dodge? Think of it. Oh my God. He turns back to Connors, a faraway look in his eyes. Remus has been betrayed by everybody he had trusted. And now, at last, 
by the one who owed him the most. I'm Abbott Kaler, and this is Remus, the Mad Bootleg King. The one Remus trusted most was on the lam. Imogene Remus was officially a fugitive from justice. Mabel Willebrandt's investigators were frantically trying to track her down. Remus, bent on revenge, wanted to talk to Willebrandt face to face in Washington. He wanted to offer his services as a government witness to testify against Imogene and two dozen other defendants. She was skeptical, but had little choice. After Imogene's betrayal with Dodge, Willenbrand figured Remus might be inclined to divulge everything. Besides, even though she had pursued Remus for years, she had never met him face to face. On the day Remus entered her office, Willenbrand was shocked at how thin he looked compared to his photographs. He'd lost 53 pounds in the Atlanta penitentiary, but his suit was impeccably tailored and pressed, his shoes polished, his derby hat stylish and stiff. Still, despite his dapper appearance, he was visibly anxious. In Remus's every gesture, Willenbrand sensed a low-grade panic. Take me before a grand jury. I'll tell them all they want to know about the Jack Daniels case. She wasn't confident of his intention to cooperate, but with Imogene on the run to parts unknown, there might be no case at all without Remus's testimony. So she sent Remus to St. Louis to meet with U.S. Attorney Alan Curry, whose job was to get all the details for the upcoming grand jury hearing. For the first minute of the interview, Remus was focused and direct, describing how he became involved with the Jack Daniels scheme. But as Curry scribbled notes, Remus lost focus. His rage at Imogene returned. He raised his meaty fist and slammed it into the desk, <coughs> mere inches from Curry's legal pad. He looked across to see Remus's face turning beet red, drops of sweat popping out on his forehead. Curry, that man Dodge, he has taken the affections of the one thing in this life that is precious to me, my little wife. After I trusted her and gave her everything into her name, power of attorney, that man Franklin Dodge has taken her away from me and ruined my life forever. In one swift movement, Remus bolted up and knocked his chair backward. For the next 15 minutes, Curry watched Remus pace the floor, wringing his hands, pulling out his hair, and jabbing himself repeatedly with stiffened fingers. Remus's face was slick with tears. Finally, Curry held up a hand and told Remus to sit. Sit down. I want to know about the Jack Daniels case. I wasn't talking about your troubles with your wife. I know that, Curry. I know that. Repeatedly, Remus would answer a few questions, then return to ranting about his ire for Imogene. Finally, Curry gave up and told Remus he was free to go. Remus took a step toward the door and then abruptly stopped, spinning back to face Curry. I am being watched by detectives. They have hired gangsters to kill me. Every day, Remus roamed the mansion and its grounds, waiting for the Jack Daniels trial to begin. The garish manor felt empty without Imogene's presence. But he could not forgive her betrayal. Remus believed she pushed Dodge to use government connections to persecute him. He felt like Dodge was a ghost who ate at his table and slept in his bed. Connors had heard dozens of reports that confirmed Remus's fears. He knew that he should share them with Remus, but he feared a confrontation. Finally, Connors worked up the nerve. 
He'd barely finished his first sentence when a host of ghostly, threatening voices began to chatter in Remus's head. Look at her on the couch with Dodge, calling him honey. She bought seven cars with your money and gave two of them to Dodge. He took Imogene to that hotel in Cleveland and they caught him with his pants down. Connor saw Remus go into another brainstorm. His eyelids fluttered like the wings of a wounded bird. His pupils disappeared. It would be an angel of mercy if someone would send a bullet through me. Remus went silent. Then he stood and pulled upward at his tie as though it were a noose. His face reddened and his voice emerged in a mangled rasp. My God, just think of that. It is terrible. Just terrible. It is terrible. It is terrible. It is terrible. Connors counted 25 repetitions of that grim mantra before Remus lunged at him, grabbed him by his vest, and shook him back and forth, their faces inches apart. Did you ever think she would do anything like that? I did. And all her friends did, too. I must have been blind. Imogene's whereabouts were still unknown. Remus had been working to find her so that he could share her location with Willembrand. Then, one night, the phone rang. Remus answered. Hello, this is Mrs. Remus talking. She had called Remus for no reason except to taunt him, and the blithe confidence in her voice instantly enraged him. Oh, no, it is not Mrs. Remus any longer. Now, Imogene, I'm going to file a cross-petition against you Monday morning, and I will let the world know what you are and that parasite you are traveling around the country with. If you and Dodge have got any idea you are going to deplete my fortune and keep my property from me, Imogene, I will follow you to China and get back what belongs to me. Remus kept his word filing a cross-petition for divorce against Imogene, naming Franklin Dodge in the suit, and asking that Imogene get no alimony. Remus hoped the petition would provoke Dodge to react. It worked. The former Prohibition agent issued a statement to the press, speaking about Imogene and Remus publicly for the first time. He called Remus's charges absolutely absurd and false. He said Mrs. Remus was a very honorable woman whose conduct had been above reproach. He pledged to assist Mrs. Remus in preparing her divorce and alimony case for trial. Franklin Dodge had been flushed out of hiding. Imogene remained at large. Back in Washington, Mabel Willembrandt was still highly suspicious of the bootlegger's intentions, but the federal prosecutors who interviewed Remus this time found him calm and composed. He gave detailed and coherent answers about the Jack Daniels scheme. He held nothing back about Imogene's involvement. He vowed to keep talking until that woman was indicted and behind bars. Against Willembrandt's wishes, the prosecutors granted Remus immunity in exchange for his testimony. Meanwhile, Willembrandt's agents, led by J. Edgar Hoover, kept tracking the fugitive wife. Remus's lawyers had asked the court for a change of venue. Indianapolis would host the trial instead. The court ordered a start date of December 14th, regardless of whether Imogene was found by then. A reporter for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch named John Rogers received a tip that Imogene was in Washington, D.C. Rogers, who was working on a series about Remus's life and career, planned to meet Remus and Connors in the capital city. In Washington, Remus and Connors took a cab to the Mayflower Hotel. According to Rogers' information, 
Dodge and Imogene had registered there as Mr. and Mrs. E.J. Ward in two adjacent rooms, 843 and 844. Remus immediately headed for the eighth floor. Connors and Rogers followed and found Remus charging headlong repeatedly into the door of room 843. For an hour, the two men battled Remus, securing his arms behind his back and maneuvering him to his room, only for him to wriggle free and bolt down the hall. Finally, they managed to put him to bed. The next morning, they learned Roger's source was wrong. Imogene had never been in room 843, or even in Washington at all. That night, she was hundreds of miles away in St. Louis. On the advice of her lawyer, she had turned herself in to federal authorities and posted bond. She would be free until the trial began in Indianapolis, where she would see Remus for the first time in four months. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. One morning in the last week of November, John Rogers was at his desk in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch newsroom. He was reading through his notes on George Remus when his phone rang. Rogers did not recognize the low, gruff voice, and the caller did not offer his name, but he offered news. 
George Remus was about to be killed in Indianapolis by a group of gangsters called Egan's Rats. Who is this? That doesn't make any difference. How do you know this is going to happen? Because Mrs. Remus and Dodge have paid to have it done. Paid $15,000. Immediately, Rogers called the Claypool Hotel in Indianapolis and asked for the room of John Marshall, the assistant attorney general representing the federal government in the Jack Daniels case. Rogers told Marshall about the anonymous call. Marshall said his agents would keep Remus safe, but that he put little stock in anonymous tips. At noon, Marshall drove Remus to Indianapolis's Union Station, where the bootlegger would leave for a short trip to Cincinnati to check on his mansion. At the station, they spotted some well-known gangsters from St. Louis, hiding behind pillars in the waiting room. Remus refused to board the train, and they returned to the hotel. The government couldn't lose Remus as a witness through either murder or fear, so Marshall quickly rented Remus a private apartment 20 minutes from Indianapolis. The bootlegger would stay there until the beginning of the trial, surrounded by Secret Service men, assured by Marshall that no one could find him. But Remus remained unconvinced. Dodge had spent most of his career hunting people down, and now he had the benefit of Imogene's knowledge and help. So Remus demanded that Marshall give him a gun. Marshall borrowed a Colt 45 revolver and some bullets from the Prohibition headquarters in Indianapolis. For Remus, this gift carried with it an unspoken understanding that he was to shoot anyone who came near him. The following week, Rogers and his post-dispatch colleague, Paul Anderson, took a train to Indianapolis and went straight to Remus's apartment. They asked hundreds of questions about the bootlegger's life. Remus was receptive and gracious, offering long, rambling answers in copious detail. Anderson would later write the flattering opening lines of their story. If there has ever been a bigger bootlegger than George Remus of Cincinnati, the fact remains a secret. Remus's operations were by far the most pretentious ever uncovered. His career was short, but not even the prison term, which terminated it, can extinguish its brilliance and audacity. In the years 1920 and 1921, Remus was to bootlegging what in the earlier years Rockefeller had been to oil. But the atmosphere changed when the journalists asked about Imogene's betrayal with Dodge. When I returned from the Atlanta pen, my heart was being eaten out of me because I did love this woman. But that pimp Dodge, that social pervert, that social leper, that social parasite. I would mash him flat as a pancake, absolutely. Rogers immediately cautioned Remus not to resort to violence. Don't talk to me of violence. Those people have murdered me in and out of prison every night for the past two years. Don't talk that way to me. To complete his story on Remus, Rogers wanted a comment from Franklin Dodge, who was already in Indianapolis awaiting the trial. Rogers called to make an appointment and ventured into the biting cold to reach Dodge's hotel. The lobby brought a welcome gust of warm air. Rogers took the elevator to the fourth floor, silently rehearsing his questions as the operator worked the switch. Dodge opened the door and invited Rogers inside. What is it you wanted to see me about? Rogers leaned forward, watching Dodge's face for clues, squints and twitches that would hint at motivations and character. In view of all the charges and cross-charges that have been made, would you care to make a statement of your relations with Mrs. Remus? 
what they are and what they amount to? That's nobody's business but my own. Rogers tried a different approach. George Remus looks upon you as having invaded the sanctity of his home. Well, if you want to know what I'm doing for Mrs. Remus, I'm gathering evidence for her and her divorce suit. That is my position in this case, and Remus is a liar and a scoundrel. There naturally must be some bad feeling there. More bad feeling than it seems. Without warning, Dodge rose from his chair and approached Rogers. He slid his shirt sleeve up toward his shoulder, flexed his arm, and dangled it an inch from Rogers' face. Feel this muscle. I got this for Remus. I could crush him like an egg. That's for Remus when he's ready. Go back and say that to your friend with my compliments. Remus was delighted when John Rogers gave him a report about the first day of the Jack Daniels trial. Remus's former chauffeur had even implicated Imogene directly, telling the jury she had made rum-running trips with him. On the second day, Remus was required to appear in court in case the government needed him on the stand. A federal agent led Remus, George Connors, and John Rogers toward the courthouse. At one point, the group noticed Imogene and her attorney walking about 100 feet ahead. She wore a wool cloche hat and a fur coat Remus had given her, and she spun her head as though she had sensed his presence. At the sight of him, Imogene let out a piercing shriek. (gasps) Daddy, don't kill me. Don't let him hurt me. She dashed ahead of her lawyer, teetering on her double-strap heels. Rogers gauged Remus's reaction, worried he would scream back at Imogene. Instead, the bootlegger just shook his head. Look what a spectacle she's making of herself. Now she'll try to make capital out of this. Moments later, inside the courtroom, Rogers left Remus to take his seat at the press table. Imogene walked toward the reporters and told all of them that Remus had just tried to assassinate her on the street that very morning. Remus shook his head in disgust when Rogers told him what Imogene had said. That's what I get for being tied up with a bag of filth like that. Now she tries to blacken my reputation through the press. On the third day of the trial, Imogene made a prediction to reporters that Remus would faint on his way to the stand. But Remus walked steadily, flanked by federal agents. He placed his hand on a Bible, swore to tell the truth, and looked directly at Imogene, sitting among 26 other defendants. Before he could speak, Imogene's attorney stood and addressed the court with an objection. We object to Mr. Remus's testimony on the ground that he was the husband of Imogene Remus at the time of the alleged offense and is still her husband and that he is incompetent as a witness. Remus sat positively still. He expected Imogene's lawyer might try this trick, but he hoped that the current state of the marriage, with divorce petitions and cross petitions filed, would work in his favor. John Marshall's co-prosecutor approached the bench. We feel that there is too much question about this point to permit such an objection going in the records. And for that reason, the government moves to drop all charges against Mrs. Imogene Remus. Imogene was off the hook. Inside, Remus raged, but he kept his composure on the stand, answering Marshall's questions about the Jack Daniels scheme with deliberate calm. Hoping to combat the recent reports that Remus had threatened Imogene, Marshall asked him to comment on the incident. It has appeared in the newspapers that I sought a reconciliation with Mrs. Imogene Remus. The woman's statement in this regard is false. Her statement was designed to influence me on her behalf so as to weaken the government's position in the Jack Daniels case. If this was her intention, 
It failed utterly. If Mrs. Remus has any hope of reconciliation with me, let her put such hopes aside. She has become repulsive to me. On the strength of Remus's testimony, 24 of his former associates were found guilty, and Remus added all 24 of them to his running list of people who wished him dead. After John Rogers' series of stories on Remus for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch was published, he kept Remus in his life. He now considered the bootlegger a friend and worried about his turbulent moods and violent brainstorms and Remus's despair over being trapped in what he called a life of hell. He traveled to see Remus in Cincinnati or accompanied him on the road. But once Remus got lost in one of his rages, there was little Rogers could do to rescue him. The mere sound of the word dodge seemed to wound him. Remus talked incessantly about the torment he had suffered at the hands of Dodge and Imogene. She would visit me at Atlanta Penitentiary and then go to the Robert Fulton Hotel and have wild drinking parties with that pimp. They tried to have me killed, and they're still at it. Good God, is there any justice in the world anywhere that these people are allowed to persecute me as they do? And that was the most coherent version of Remus's daily ramblings. Remus had begun to speak in broken sentences, words cut short, syllables dropped, leaping from one thought to the next with no connection between the two. Rogers would wait it out, sometimes for hours on end, and eventually Remus would write himself. He would sit down across from Rogers, dazed and exhausted, a stranger to that wild lunatic speaking in the third person. In the most genteel voice, the bootlegger would apologize. Finally, Rogers and George Connors made a pact. Unless absolutely necessary, no one was to mention Imogene's and Dodge's names in the same sentence. Remus's mental condition kept declining, even though he had beaten the Jack Daniels rap. It didn't help that he still had one prison sentence looming, a one-year bid in Ohio for maintaining a nuisance at Death Valley, his bootlegging headquarters outside Cincinnati. As his lawyers filed appeals, Remus continued to search for his missing assets. In the spring of 1926, he sued Imogene and Dodge in federal court in Cleveland, charging that they had stolen at least $700,000 of his personal property, most of it in whiskey certificates. Remus tried to recover the whiskey certificates, but was served with a restraining order on behalf of the businessman who'd bought them from Dodge. Remus shared this latest misfortune with Rogers, and when the journalist next traveled to Cincinnati, he expected to find his friend on the verge of another brainstorm. Instead, Remus invited him for breakfast at the mansion and a walk through the garden. He seemed in exceptionally good spirits, and Rogers asked what had prompted this mood. Imogene is in town, and I am in touch with her. Where is she? At the Alms Hotel. They kept walking until mid-morning, when Remus asked if Rogers might like to take a ride. Remus's lawyer had suggested he meet with Imogene in the hope of reaching a cash settlement, a preemptive move to prevent her from selling more of his property. He hadn't seen Imogene in many months, and a part of him couldn't help feeling excited. He'd even bought Imogene a box of candy for the occasion. Rogers agreed, and within minutes, a chauffeur was driving them to the alms. A special entrance through the hotel garage allowed them to avoid the lobby, and they took the elevator directly to Imogene's suite of rooms. Imogene's mother opened the door and ushered them in. Imogene's daughter, Ruth, and her boyfriend huddled together on a couch. 
Remus drew a few bills from his wallet and pressed them into Ruth's hand. Here, go and get Mother some flowers. Ruth left, taking her boyfriend with her. After a moment, Imogene emerged from an adjoining bedroom. Smiling, she greeted Rogers and then turned to Remus, grabbing the lapels of his coat. Daddy, I am so glad you are here and that you've brought Mr. Rogers. She leaned in for a kiss, but at the last second, Remus turned his head away, letting her graze his cheek. No one mentioned Dodge, and Remus seemed calm and collected. He and Imogene sat at a table, a stack of papers fanned out in front of them. They spent the morning that way, just two people working together to settle their differences. When they broke for lunch, white-gloved servers lowered silver platters heavy with salmon mousse and baked ham. Rogers turned to Imogene. I'm glad to see Remus in a good frame of mind. I hope there will be no untoward incident to disrupt the friendly feeling. There has been so much trouble, and it would be good for all concerned to have a friendly settlement. Everything would be all right if it wasn't for Daddy. What is the matter with me? What have I done? Mention one incident where I've been mean or cruel to you. Well, I could mention one. All right, now. Tell it. Imogene lowered her head. She began talking, but her words were barely audible. And then she stopped herself. Remus decided to finish her unspoken thought. Do you mean about Romola? He knew Imogene would understand the reference. They had fought in the past about his generosity toward his own daughter. Imogene sat stone-faced. Yes, that is it. Well, Romola is my daughter, and I have a right to be kind to her. You certainly don't object to my being kind to Romola. Well, that is it. Is that all? Is that the only incident in your life in connection with me that has caused you trouble? That's enough, isn't it? Rogers got up from the dining table and wandered across the suite to a sitting area. Imogene's mother followed him. The genteel old lady spoke in a whisper so that only the journalist could hear. Mr. Rogers, Mr. Remus has made a lot of outrageous charges against my daughter, and I understand you have some influence with him. Do you think you could prevail upon him to retract them? If you could do it, we would greatly appreciate it. I will do all I can to reconcile the differences. Imogene then entered the sitting area. She perched on the sofa next to Roger's chair and leaned in close. I am awfully glad, Mr. Rogers, that Daddy brought you along. I understand he listens to you and you may be able to do some good for him and for us. I think a disinterested person could help you both. But you're in bad company from what I've learned. As long as you have any connection to Franklin Dodge... That will tend to keep matters in an unsettled and upset state. Imogene sat quietly and didn't reply. Rogers decided he had to speak all of his mind, lest he later regret holding back. I fear the whole thing will end in a tragedy, unless you do something to put an end to the situation. Imogene seemed genuinely startled. What do you mean by that? I'm afraid that you will get hurt, and I hate to think what would happen if Remus ever met you and Dodge together. She sat back and appeared to relax. Oh, you think you know Daddy, but you don't know him as well as I do. Daddy wouldn't hurt me. Daddy's good to me. But please, don't let him hurt Mr. Dodge. Please. At that, Remus appeared in the doorway. Roger spoke directly to him. I was just telling Mrs. Remus that I believe that a disinterested person, one who doesn't have designs on your money, 
could do more to conciliate the situation than someone of whom either side is suspicious. Precisely. That is the point I am trying to get to her. Imogene didn't acknowledge Remus's comment, and Remus left the negotiations that day with nothing settled, least of all his mind. The next week, Remus invited his accountant and George Connors to the mansion, hoping to draw up a reasonable offer to present to Imogene. During a pause in the conversation, they heard the front door open, then a pair of heels crossing the wood floor. They glanced up to see Imogene looking aggrieved. What are you people doing here? This is my home. I have a right to be here. Of course you have. No one asked you to leave. And if you want to stay here, I will go to a hotel. Connors felt compelled to explain further. Look, Imogene, we're here to try to arrange some kind of settlement. Connors saw Imogene reach into her purse. When she pulled out her hand, it was curled around a pearl-handled revolver. I will settle this myself. On this date, November 24th, 1927, this session of the Criminal Division of Common Pleas Court in Hamilton County will come to order. I call Julia F. Brown to the stand. You are the mother of Imogene Remus? Yes, sir. Did Mrs. Remus tell you at any time that she was getting ready to kill her husband? Never. Next time on Remus, the mad bootleg king. I feel very bitter toward daddy. I mean, my husband. I just wish someone would beat his brains out. They will never take me if I see them first. Catch that car! Remus, The Mad Bootleg King is a co-production of iHeart Podcasts and School of Humans. It's hosted by me, Abbott Kaler. Chuck Reese and I wrote the show. Our producer is Miranda Hawkins. Our senior producer is Jessica Metzger. Executive producers are Virginia Prescott, Brandon Barr, Elsie Crowley, and Jason English. Sound design and mix by Chris Childs. Elise McCoy composed original music. Additional scoring by Chris Childs. Voices in this episode provided by Ben Bolin, Lauren Vogelbaum, Dylan Fagan, Noel Brown, Matt Frederick, James Morrison, Jonathan Sleep, Joel Ruiz, Jay Jones, Lou Carlozo, Van Gunter, Fleet Cooper, Jeremy Thaw, and Nicole Britton. Special thanks to John Higgins from Curiosity Stream and the team at CDM Studios in New York. If you're a fan of the podcast, please give it a review in your podcast app. You can also check out other Curiosity podcasts to learn about history, pop culture, true crime, and more. School of Humans. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. 
From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. 